With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, welcome to the live broadcast. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is TNT. Today's news talk, two hours of action-packed news and analysis. Deep dives, we've got quite a few we've got lined up today. We've got a few guests who are going to join us on the stage. It's going to be a busy day, but there's so much going on in the world uh, that we have so much stuff to cover. We need to be speaking to some of the best people possible on this, on both sides of the Atlantic, of course, uh, on the United States side. We'll also go over to the European side as well, as well as get a dip into the Middle Eastern viewpoint here uh, on the international news. And listen, uh, we'll, we'll be joined by some great anti-war activists. We haven't had a lot of activists on the show previously. Mostly we're, we're working with journalists and dealing on the information front, but now things have come into a different phase, and right now is where the anti-war activism comes into play, especially in the United States because of the election cycle that's now coming up. And if you look at the polls right now, the Democrats are absolutely hemorrhaging support in pretty much every minority and ethnic minority group right across the board. If you look at the poll, the polling by the People's Pundit, the great pollster Richard Barris, certainly this data is coming out uh, in the polls that he's taking. And one of the areas that they're really hemorrhaging is Muslim and Middle Eastern Americans. Now, these are spread out more broadly around the country, but with the heavy uh, constituencies on the East Coast, we're talking about New England. We're also so talking about New York, New Jersey, right down to Washington, D.C., some parts of Florida, Texas as well, but especially the swing state of Michigan and Dearborn, Michigan, being a major uh, Middle Eastern enclave within that state, but also Detroit more broadly. What does that mean in a close race in the 2024 elections? Let's talk about a general between either a Biden or Gavin Newsom versus, let's say, Donald Trump that could be decided on, well, if you look at past elections, as little as a few thousand votes it could even come down to less than a thousand votes it has done in the past that close races in swing states like michigan with hillary clinton in 2016 and others you know that every vote counts so these are why this these issues are really impactful right now so we'll be talking to some activists about that because i think these issues are moving the dial certainly on the democratic side so we'll see how that shapes up. We're also going to be talking uh, to Basil Valentine, a roving correspondent for, well, it would say used to be culture sport, but now international affairs. Basil is going to be on the line with us, hopefully in the first hour as well, for an update on the situation in Gaza, the important things that we need to know. Uh, and then in the second hour, we're going to be joined by Tagreed Al-Mahwed from the Palestinian Refugee Project based in the UK, uh, in Wales. And also in the second hour, Blake Lovewell is going to be talking to us about the incredible Bitcoin rally. Wow. Nobody saw that coming, but yet it did. So Bitcoin is resilient, continues to show its properties, its strength to mature. And the crypto community is very excited about that. Certainly Blake is. We'll find out how that's going to affect the rest of the financial system. And will people be moving more into cryptocurrencies as a result of the current rally? These are all important questions we'll try to get some answers for during this program now the big news internationally which we want to talk about 
is this coalition that the United States is attempting to form uh, against Yemen? I don't know what really what to call it. They've got a funny name for it. They've got all these funny names like prosperity and endurance or something like that. This this latest one, the Washington's dreamt up, has got like the word prosperity in it. I'll try to get I'll try to call that up right now. But um, this this is to designed to basically counter Yemen. I'm calling it the anti-Yemen coalition led by the United States, Britain, France. They've even drafted in the Netherlands and Spain. Spain's going to be a tricky one, by the way, because the Spanish people aren't on board with Israel's genocide, uh, which they're carrying out against the native Palestinian population. Spanish generally don't like ethnic cleansing and genocide. They're putting a lot of pressure on their lawmakers to take a more strong stance on this. But, you know, it's funny about Spain. The last time Spain was roped into uh, a losing coalition by the United States was with Iraq, and it ended in the complete rejection of the uh, Ansar government there at the time, not to mention the Madrid train bombings. I personally think that was a false flag attack or something along the Operation Gladio lines. That's just my personal opinion, of course. <laughs> Who am I to be voicing such controversial personal opinions? I mean, heaven forbid. Uh, but anyway, it didn't go well for Spain then. I don't think it's going to go well for Spain this time. But this is a bit of a different animal. Now, the United States is very keen to rope in three key actors on this. The three Three key actors, of course, will be the Arab actors. Those are Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE. Now, has this successfully been done by Washington? Well, not so fast. Egypt has already announced that it will not likely be taking part in this grand coalition to stop those Yemenis from interdicting uh, Israeli ships on the high seas. So that's what the Yemeni resistance movement is doing. It's capturing or attacking, in some cases, Israeli ships. They believe are providing aid and material support for the uh, slaughter uh, in Gaza. So, And they've made this statement publicly that they'll keep doing this until the bombing of civilians stops, until there's effectively a ceasefire in Gaza. So, you know, they're acting as a normative state power. They've got a policy. They made an announcement. They take action. They'll say, we'll keep taking this action until that policy stops. In this case, it's with Israel. So the United States has got a bit of a problem on their hands. Egypt has said they'd rather pursue the issue through dialogue and diplomacy, civilized dialogue and diplomacy. Egypt is smart. They're really hedging their bets here, taking their, this a lot slower. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are on the fence as well. What does this mean for them? The Yemenis have already said, if Saudi Arabia or the UAE who both took part in the war on Yemen over the last nine years. There's a fragile peace truce right now. This, of course, would break that truce and would resume the war between Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Mind you, this was a war that was waged that Saudi Arabia initiated in March of 2015, along with Barack Obama and the United States administration, had a joint effort to wage war on Yemen. They didn't really give a clear reason at the time. They just said we're we're you know we're fighting Yemen, we're fighting the Houthis, and then they marketed the Houthis, uh, which is really Ansar Allah. That is the Yemeni resistance movement. They've marketed them in the West as a terrorist group, when in fact they are regarded by many, if not the majority, of Yemenis as the legitimate government of that country. What the West have done is support this puppet government, Mansur Al Hadi, who ended up resigning twice and overstayed his term in office, then flees the country, and then Saudi Arabia and America say that's the legitimate president. He was like the Juan Guaido 
of Yemen, to, to use an apt metaphor there. So you know what we're dealing with here. Uh, always this like uh, president in exile in Washington or in Riyadh in this case. This is a legitimate leader, and, and they're, they're willing to wage war to kill hundreds of thousands of Yemenis, to starve the country, to put it under embargo blockade, all to install their own puppet leader. That's the West. They they used Saudi at the time because Saudi was in a very weak position in their internal Game of Thrones in 2015. And MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, heir apparent to the throne, he was very young at the time. I would put him at about roughly 33 years old, a little bit naive. I think he was taken for a ride by Washington. And uh, the rest is history, tragic history for Saudi. So the, for Saudi Arabia, that means Yemen's going to hit their oil refineries, Saudi Aramco facilities, no Patriot missile batteries are going to be able to protect them forever. So they're thinking twice about this, as are the Emiratis uh, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. They're thinking twice about this. So what do you have? You've got a Western coalition of the willing at the end of the day and a few other stooges along for the ride. Who knows who they can rope in for that uh, little bit of extra players to pad out the coalition of the willing so not going to go well and they've thrown everything they can at yemen you have to remember they've thrown everything the united states military the british even the israelis were involved in that coalition with saudi arabia by the way little known fact they threw everything they can at the yemeni resistance they, they destroyed the country practically they tried to starve the people and what happened answer allah the houthis got stronger more adaptive better equipped more more ingenuity develop their own missile tech their own drone tech they're using different parts from china they're using bits from iran they're using a bits from the west and other things that are on the market and they're inflicting huge damage to a much more powerful in fact many regard as the most powerful military in the arab world anyway would be saudi arabia i would put egypt ahead of them but let's just say they're in that sort of top tier and Yemeni, this ragtag resistance group of, you know, rural people wearing sarongs with AK-47s and RPGs. Again, it's almost like, again, the, the, the Taliban defeating NATO, similar sort of dynamic, difficult terrain. Does Washington really think they're going to go in there with a couple of cruise missile strikes, little posturing with the aircraft carriers? They think that's going to subdue the Yemenis after nine years more likely you're going to end up with a, a u.s ship sunk in the arabian sea and then all hell is going to break loose is that what the world needs why not just think about what the yemenis are proposing why not move for a ceasefire and stop the war crimes is that a hard one for washington to get their head around to get their heart around really not a difficult question for most people in the world but for some reason this is really making it difficult it's a real conundrum for the people in the west who seem to be more afraid of falling foul of the israeli media machine and political machine than they do doing the right thing doing the right thing for humanity in this case the world is pretty much uh, voiced its consensus on this. It's only the G7 countries that are having trouble with this issue, figuring out what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. Look at the amount of dead civilians and children. I mean, really, what does it take to get to reality? The pennies already dropped, folks, only they haven't heard it in Washington 
or London or Berlin or Paris yet, maybe a little bit in Paris. Anyway, we'll talk more about that after the break and in the rest of the program. And we'll be joined uh, after this break right now by our guest uh, from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. We'll be talking to Janet and a lot more after these messages with TNT. Today's news talk. Stay right there. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative and she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around so that's not really taking off the way they want to either and then she said something very interesting she said you know what when the water crisis comes people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water and if you don't have water for a few days at a time you'll know all about it so maybe you know we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a world economic forum type narrative could this be what it is locked in Loaded with Rick Mon on today's News Talk TNT Radio. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, near 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. 
The net zero con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's news talk. Again, I'm your host, Patrick Ennis, and we're still in hour number one of this live broadcast. Thank you to everybody in the TNT chat community. We see the numbers growing there every day. We had a high water mark on Monday of 120 people in the chat room. Great community there. That's where all the links are. That's where all the research is, the memes, the banter. That's where you want to be during the live broadcast. If you're listening either on the TNT radio app, can Bluetooth that through your car stereo, or also on vision on tnt's live stream you'll see us on youtube rumble and a number of other video sharing platforms as well as at the tnt hq tnt radio dot live uh, online all of the links you'll find them there now let's switch gears right now uh to the situation in gaza but we'll go over to the united states right now and we're going to speak to a couple of representatives of an organization called the bronx anti-war coalition and as we were talking about before the break this issue what's going on right now in the middle east in gaza is having an effect on the domestic political scene in the united states and there's a lot of pressure that's coming to bear on the white house this on the biden administration and people are really questioning the the morals the ethics uh the principles the values behind the current u.s policy which is really backing israel in what Anybody who's looking at this objectively, and I'm taking my cues from the UN, former UN commissioner, the head on human rights, uh, calling this a textbook case of genocide. So we don't need any more excuse to act on this. That's my feeling. I'm sure our audience is very much on board with that sentiment as well. Now, I want to bring in our guests right now from this organization, the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. I want to welcome onto the states Janet and Sahar as well from that organization. Welcome to the program, both of you. Glad to be here. Very glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. No, it's our pleasure. And look, we we really want to know. There's a lot of things I want to know about what what the the scene is like right now, uh, especially in New York City. There's been a lot of political uh, pressure. I'd say a lot of attacks as well coming from the media, uh, from certain politicians who are who've been mischaracterizing or mislabeling uh, pro-Palestinian or you know anti-genocide uh, protests or demonstrations. I don't know what other way to describe it at this point. It's so over the top, but they've been labeling these uh, as you know pro-Hamas, pro-terrorist. So you, you're probably all used to this. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Janet, uh, if you just want to explain to us for people who aren't aware of the organization, what it's all about, what's your remit, what's the sort of work you're doing in relation, especially to what's going on right now in Gaza. Go ahead. Oh, absolutely. And thank you. Um, the Bronx uh, Anti-War Coalition was created about a year and a half ago. Uh, we initially actually assembled because of the conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, but this, this is obviously um, become an overwhelming issue that we're focusing on now. Um, we're a very diverse group. Uh, the Bronx always is. <laughs> um, and as the Bronx always is, we're we're outspoken. We're 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 not as interested in playing the civility game. We need to speak truth to power, and we're willing to do it. Um, one of the things we've not only have we been doing rally after rally after rally, we've uh, confronted various politicians 
in which I'm sure we're going to be discussing soon enough. And uh, we've also recently put out a petition to the UN, and we're also trying to go through various missions to restore historic Palestine, because it's, it's our strong opinion that ceasefire, while it's crucial, is not enough. We, we need to change the source of the problem, not just kick it down the road. Okay, then we'll talk about some of those aspects of it as well. And uh, I, I have seen a lot of confrontations of politicians from, I think it's somebody, I don't know if he's from your, Jose Vega. Is that uh, the person who's been confronting that's, politicians? That's one of them. We've, we've worked with Jose. He's, he's not technically part of the Bronx Anti-War Coalition, but I consider him a friend. Yeah, and a lot I've of those videos have gone, videos. they've gone viral. They're very effective, those confrontations on video. So that's a big part of the activism right now on social media. And it draws a lot of people to the issue. So, um, but uh, I wanted to go over to Sahar. Sahar, so, you know, opposing war, the, the Ukraine war, there's, that was a sort of a, a coalition. There was a lot of people from the right. I attended the, uh, the big anti-war, Rage Against the War in Washington, D.C. rally last February. And you had Republicans, Libertarians. You had Democrats, progressives, everybody was on board, but then you've, we've seen splits in that. Uh, a lot of people have peeled off. You saw a lot of the Republicans, Tulsi Gabbard herself has completely peeled away uh, from that sort of coalition, if you will. That's been a difficult part of this right now. And you know, how are you guys viewing that uh, in terms of the you know broad-based support? We'll go ahead. Yeah, I, I believe right now our focus is mostly on Palestine. Um, I know I joined the coalition um, once the escalation in Gaza started happening, and I had heard about it because, uh, you know, I'm from the Bronx, but most of my activism um, has been in New York City, so Manhattan, Brooklyn, with regards to Palestine. So I think the Bronx Anti-War Coalition has been um a huge base for bronx sides to focus on palestine for the first time really ever in in bronx history and uh and janet how, how are you how are you guys dealing with the the onslaught of propaganda uh, on, around this issue right now in Gaza, because this is a big issue for us, obviously, we work in the media. So it's literally a torrent, a tidal wave of fake stories, disinformation, and it really shapes U.S. public opinions and backs ends up getting the public to back policies that I don't know if they'd actually back if they had the correct information. But go ahead. What's your your thoughts on in how are you guys countering that? How are you guys dealing with that's a very difficult issue. Go ahead, Janet. That has been huge. I mean, one, obviously, one of the key things to do is social media. Uh, but then again, you know, you have people who aren't in social media that, you know, they've, you need to break into the people who watch uh, mainstream media as well. And uh, I'm also a member of JVP, that's Jewish Voice for Peace. And we've been doing a lot of very, very active civil disobedience. And that's, that's things that are going to get to the people who aren't addicted to Twitter or Facebook. We uh, took over Grand Central. We stopped, we shut down the Manhattan Bridge. Things that we need to get across the point that this is not an issue of anti-Semitism. This is, there are tons of Jews that stand against this. And we need to break through that narrative. And that's what we're trying to do. 
And uh, so, so here uh, on the issue of uh, propaganda and a lot of the stories have been floated out after October 7th and how the U.S. media and people have basically somehow, I don't know, trauma bonded with some of the propaganda. What, what are your thoughts on this phenomenon? Yeah, I, I think one thing that is important to know in the U.S. is that there has been a growing distrust of media here um for years now um as janet mentioned social media has been um the place for a lot of people to get their news and see raw footage of what's going on in gaza because of the palestinians who are reporting live there um as to your question about the propaganda and trauma bonding you know, the U.S. has a long history of racism and Islamophobia. There has been a lot of anti-Arab sentiment that has been propagated in U.S. media for decades now. Um, so it's very easy for uh, news corporations to just tap into that racist, Islamophobic, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian sentiment. Um, however, uh, there are a lot of people who have a growing awareness of this racism of you know um the use of racism to manufacture consent for war for genocide and i think a big part of that had to do with you know the martyrdom of george floyd you know the black lives matter movement a lot of people who weren't thinking about race all of a sudden had you know learned the vocabulary of white supremacy of capitalism of all these things and so now um with the issue of palestine people are just more prepared to answer these questions of okay what is really going on what is the what is um what consent is trying to be manufactured here and uh and and janet uh, sahir brings up this point uh she mentioned the 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 term white supremacy now this is this is something that's kind of come into the uh israel palestine conversation because it seems like at least in the last eight weeks a lot more people especially in america are, are getting an education on what zionism is because previous to that wasn't it wasn't so much of a mainstream conversation now we're starting to see a lot of discussions uh where people are able to separate the ideology of zionism from uh the jewish identity those being two different things what what are your thoughts on that have you seen a change in the understanding on this uh well i think that it's well it's definitely a lot more people are aware of the conflict uh and the various issues of the conflict and i do think that um we're now people are now more realizing how not only is it a white supremacy issue it's a colonism it's it's settler colonial colonialism um because it's it's not even just a land grab it's the the, the rhetoric that we're hearing from the israeli apologists is specifically these are you know pardon the the terms you know these are animals you know i've heard worse and I've even also heard a lot of Israelis pushing the, or Zionists, pushing the, oh, gee, all of you people of color, we were there for you during the civil rights. Now you owe us. So it's like you're a token. And that's an interesting angle. That's, I haven't heard that yet, but that's an interesting angle. So, 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 so just on that basis, 
So, and this is another problem is the U.S. policy. So, as a as an anti-war group, uh, you're active on on the Palestine issue. Uh, what is the U.S. policy? Um, I know that they like uh, banding about the two-state solution talking point. So, you've got the two-state solution. Many are also talking about a one-state solution, one land, one country for everybody, equal rights, like we have in America and other regular normal countries. Uh, you could say, and then there's the no-state solution which seems to be the Israeli de facto policy, even though it's not their public policy, it does seem by their actions that they're pursuing a no-state solution. What it, do, Does that come into your organization's calculus in terms of political activism, or do you want to leave that issue to the Palestinians to decide or advocate for themselves? How, Janet, how are you handling that issue? Well, I'm speaking for myself, and of course, Sayer is going to speak as well. Um, I would say, well, notably, Netanyahu just recently boasted that he purposely sabotaged the two-state solution. Uh, there was a conversation, and he said, oh, I'm really, really glad, you know, I did, you know, it made sure it didn't happen. So all of this um, Hasbara of, well, we offered them this, and they turned it down, is, you know, to, to put it nicely, BS. Um, I would say that, personally would say that the only way that you can possibly have justice is a one-state solution because you need right of return. That's, that's I, even if you're a strict libertarian, which by the way, I, I had one, at one point hailed from the libertarian uh, viewpoint, uh, we're talking property rights and restitution. You're kicked out of your home, you have a right to go back to your home. Full stop. And as a U.S. citizen, I would assume that at least we would agree with one person, one vote. Ethnostate is inherently immoral. No group should have special rights. That's my take on it. So, so here, uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, so the Bronx Anti-War Coalition definitely believes in or definitely supports a one-state solution and a restoration of historic Palestine, the right of return for all Palestinians who were displaced. Um, as for what that government would look like, I personally believe that it should be left to, you know, Palestinians and those living there. Yeah, so basically one state uh whoever wants to stay and live under equal rights, equal rights under the law, equal representation can stay. Those who don't like that could probably uh, move out if if they reject that. That that was really the bargain, wasn't it, uh, with apartheid South Africa? And that's what happened. A lot of people left South Africa, but many people stayed. Not a perfect uh, a solution on, on anyone's front because it has all this historical legacy to it. But but it is a solution nonetheless. So that's basically what I think you're advocating for here. Um, yeah, this is a very divisive issue. And the reason it's divisive, I think, is because the political leadership, especially in the United States, are afraid to actually engage the issue. And so they're, 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 they're going to this sort of convenient default talking point about the Oslo Accords and the two-state solution. If you look at the map right now, I think, uh, Janet, I think you can agree there's not much of a two-state left uh, on the Palestinian side. It's just getting smaller and smaller, literally by the day. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, you just said it quite well with that. 
Uh, they're, they, they, even even if they wanted it, there is no two-state solution. Uh, something I uh, we bring up in our petition for restoring the uh, Palestinian homeland, uh, historic Palestine, is that it's not even pride. Not only is it immoral to say, "Well, we gave you your little area, and you can't come back." But it's also not pragmatic, because as long as you have two states, that provides a very convenient border for Israel to shoot over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to comment on that, Sahir? Yeah, I mean, we've seen time and time again Israel's greed for land grabs. It continues to annex areas of the West Bank. Um, it continues expanding its settlements even though it goes against international law. So we can't really expect Israel to respect any sort of two-state solution. Yeah, I think so. Practically, it's it's going to end up being the status quo of exactly what you have uh, right now. Now, uh, we've got a couple of minutes left before we go. This this There's a lot of push on from the U.S. media attacking students and trying to get presidents of universities uh, ousted uh, because of this alleged anti-Semitism row and so forth. Have you got any comments on this? Because it does seem like th- this is being completely mischaracterized by at least the political class and the media on this. Janet, do you have any thoughts on this issue? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Some of which, you know, I won't say because, you know, hey, this is a polite show. <laughs> but Oh, feel free. Uh, uh, you know, you're, you're allowed some more uh, additional latitude on TNT, but go ahead. Uh, frankly, I find the Zionist posi- position to be the most anti-Semitic uh, ideology I've ever run across. First of all, you know, it, it uses the um, dual loyalty trope which is, you know, oh, we, you know, the Jews have to be loyal to Israel, which, no. Uh, I, since, since I have latitude, uh, we've been, uh, I pointed out that a, a good response is STFU, <laughs> Zionism, <laughs> shut the up. Um, and also the claim that we Jews are so weak and defenseless that we need to have a safe space and that the only way we can survive is to commit genocide. There's a phrase out there, which is, uh, you know, everything that the Zionists say is projection, and that's true. Zionism and and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I'm shocked is Representative Stefanik from New York, actually, uh, who's grilling the president of Pennsylvania University, who ended up resigning over this, saying that the students were calling for the genocide of of the Jewish population. That's not what the students were calling for. It was completely inverted, as the media have done routinely, uh, by calling students pro-Hamas mobs pro-terrorism and all of this stuff and saying that from the river to the sea or uh, wanting to end apartheid Israel or whatever, that's somehow akin to the the genocide of Jews. I mean, just completely a non sequitur from an argumentative point of view, but then they're running with that and to see the, the academic heads capitulating to this sort of gaslighting 
by Representative Stefanik and others was quite shocking. You know, from an academic institution, I thought they'd stand up, you know, and show some critical thinking. I had to take critical thinking at university. I had to know the basics. So I'd expect the president of an Ivy League school, for instance, to be able to do the same. So, uh, but uh, not not all of them handled that well. I think maybe MIT handled it a little bit smarter uh, than Penn did. But uh, look, we're going to go to break in a minute. But um, uh, Sahar, uh, do you have any final comments? comments as well before we go to break we'll wrap up this segment yeah i just want to say it really just goes to show how complicit a lot of these universities and educational institutions are complicit in the zionist occupation as well as actively invested in and that's why a lot of students are calling for the divestment from these weapons manufacturing companies yeah certainly on the defense side this is a good place to to start as an anti-war organization that's a, a a sort of you know a practical place for you guys to put your efforts because let's face it and even an israeli minister admitted this recently that if the united states was not providing bombs and ammunition they, israel would not be able to carry its operations out for more than a week or two that's the fact so anybody that says the u.s is not a co-belligerent uh, in this war, I don't think that's true. They are absolutely a co-belligerent, as are uh, the other countries providing support, like the UK, for instance, also Germany providing a lot of support, and even France and a few other countries as well. So, yeah, the BDS route, I think, is uh, boycotts, uh, sanctions, things like that, very practical. I'd love to talk to you guys about the Genocide Convention. We, we've run out of time, but maybe we can arrange another conversation on that. That's a campaign that's picking up steam right now on social media. But I want to thank you, uh, Janet and Sahar from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition for joining us on TNT this week. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure. And there they go. Uh, check out them on social media as well. We'll drop a link in the TNT chat room. I've also tagged uh, Janet's account as well. We'll also get a link to the Bronx Anti-War Coalition so you guys can follow their work. If you're in the tri-state area, certainly you might want to link up and see what's happening there. Let's take a break right now with the network. We're still in hour number one. I'm Patrick Kennington. Your host will be back after these messages. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. By some unimaginable impossibility, you're still trying to determine whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Ask yourself the following questions. Did you favor the Baphomet statue being erected at the Iowa State Capitol? Did you enjoy the school board swearing in on a stack of child pornography books? Do you find nothing objectionable about a homosexual sex tape being recorded in a Senate hearing room and posted online. And finally, did you just love the transgender nutcracker down a hallway hideously decorated by Dr. Jill Biden for Christmas at the White House? If the answer to one or more of these questions is yes, you might be a Democrat. In fact, you're definitely a Democrat. As for the rest of us, if you doubted that in the words of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, this next election is the choice between normal and crazy. Wonder no more. Last week said it all. From aginstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. You are loved. You are valued. You are resilient. 
You got this. You are there for them. We are here for you. Find free care guides at aarp.org caregiving. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes across all missions has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. It is Tuesday. You're listening to TNT. You're watching TNT today's news talk. I'm Patrick Kennington, your host. We're still in our number one of this live broadcast. Big thank you to our previous guests, uh, Janet and Sahir from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition. It's good to sort of touch base. And uh, wow, they've been doing some incredible sit-ins and demonstrations. We saw the scenes from the Grand Central Station in New York, the closure of believe it was the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan. Uh, So working conjunction with Jewish Voices for Peace there. So it's great to talk to them, find out what's going on in the tri-state area. We're going to endeavor to get uh, one of their colleagues on uh, in the the next uh, program, hopefully later this week, perhaps. Anyway, I'll uh, work on that on the back line. But there's a lot going on there. It's important that we we find out what's going on on the street. So we appreciate them. Now, let's go on to our next uh, topic as well. A little bit more deep dive in the political updates uh, on the ground updates with regards to Gaza as well and other things too. Let's bring on to the program uh, Basil Valentine. Basil, uh, how are you? Very well. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. And uh, hello to our listeners all around the world. How are you doing, Basil? It's great to have you. And uh, I don't know if you were listening to the previous conversation or not. They brought up some interesting points. Uh, I don't know if you want to elaborate on anything there, but I definitely want to talk to you about the latest uh, news out of the Gaza Strip. But go ahead. Um, yeah, uh, the, the two excellent guests, by the way. I don't know. Uh, how you got in touch with them, but... Um, uh, we have fantastic. great connections. We got great connections yeah. at this show. You have no idea. Yeah, yeah, great to get some real grassroots activists there. And I concur with them about the one-state solution. Of course, that means, in one sense of the word, the end of Zionism. This is what people get so hot under the collar about when people chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That somehow, uh, I mean, I've heard it said by Israelis, a one-state solution would mean that the Arab population 
over the whole of historic Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, and what's currently Israel, would be in a majority and would simply slaughter every Jew that they could get their hands on. Well, unfortunately, the previously, you know, unbelievably remote possibility of that has grown as a result of the repeated massacres going on as we speak. Um, but why does Zionism have to mean a Jewish domination and a Jewish majority? Not one single Jewish person has to leave the land of what is now Israel, currently Palestine, under a one-state pollution solution. They can carry on living there, practicing their religion, da da da. There are, you know, no reason at all why anybody has to leave. That's the key point. So, you know, if you feel your Jewish identity is intimately tied up with living on that land, fine, stay there by all means. But in a one person, one vote democratic system covering the whole of historic Palestine, what's wrong with that? So more and more people are starting to see that that's the only way out. Now, I would add a, a sort of caveat to that, which is a suggestion of my own and uh, is uh, sort of based on the Swiss model of cantonization. So in other words, you had a, a federal government, which I think in the interim would need to be sort of run uh, in association with the UN or some international body in order to keep the peace, you know, in order to sort of keep a watch on things, certainly for the first 30 years or something. But in addition, the Swiss model being uh, a very high degree of decentralization to individual communities. So where there is a Jewish majority, they can effectively run that town, city, community, how they want with their Jewish community. Where there is a Palestinian majority, but, no, they I, can I, run. I, I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to stop you there. That They can't run it how they want. Uh, in the Swiss system, there is a binding Swiss constitution. So oh, right. even though there's, even like you said, as a canton, even though there's a majority, um, they still, everyone has equal rights within the jurisdiction under the, the yes. federal constitution. Yes. It's an important caveat yes. because absolutely yes, yes. yes absolutely so that would be you know uh, that was only really long-term just solution the only surely the only sensible one but unfortunately the chances of that have been hugely reduced and of course that as a solution is totally unacceptable to the israelis and uh, Western allies are continuing to bang the two-state solution drum. I did see that David Cameron has uh, an Israeli legal advisor um, and has been talking about what a two-state solution would look like were it to be, you know, were it to be brought about. And mm. that necessitates the removal of at least 200,000 settlers from the West Bank. So yeah. good luck. Well, with, good luck let's, with let's, that, let's, they say. Good luck. Good luck with that. It's not impossible, but um, you have to remember that uh, something like I think in total, uh, almost a hundred thousand settlers have already peeled off uh, from the northern uh, settlements along the southern Lebanese border and around Gaza as well. And many of them peeled off off out of the country, and they're not coming back. So you can see how dedicated they are to the land uh, that they believe that was like given to them or gifted to them in the Old Testament or whatever. Uh, the first sign of sparks 
flying, they, they're gone. They're back to Florida, New Jersey, or wherever. So uh, not to be coming back. So that might that might actually solve some of those problems naturally uh, anyway. But uh, listen, uh, I just want to comment on something as well. In the chat room, a previous guest uh, from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition, people are saying that she mentioned George Floyd and, uh, you know, oh, Patrick, why aren't you pushing back against this and whatever? Listen. Uh, everybody has strong opinions on some of these, especially hotly politically charged issues like George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. But the topic that we're dealing with here is Palestine and how it relates to the U.S. government, the policies of supporting Israel as well. So I don't really have time to delve into that. Suffice to say, 21st Century Wire gave coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial as good. We ran a live blog for weeks. OK, so I know where I stand on the issue. Uh, I know the truth of that issue. And it's a separate issue we can litigate uh, at another time. But this is we've got something big going on here that could predicate World War III. So I, I'm just like prioritizing it a little bit. So, uh, But I do acknowledge what you said in the chat. But uh, do sort of keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize is we need to stop the genocide in Gaza. Basil Valentine, what is the situation right now in Gaza? Anything big to report? Well, there's always, you know, hundreds of people being killed every day. That's that you know. That's the main thing. Um, the UN Security Council is meeting again for yet another ceasefire vote, which has been delayed in order to try and assuage American objections. I think they've had enough of trying to um, push things through if they're just going to be vetoed by the states. There really isn't any point um, to bring us fully up to date. Hamas says it rejects talks over prisoners during war, but is open to moves to end the conflict. Uh, we affirm our position of categorically rejecting to hold any form of negotiations over prisoners exchange under the continuing Israeli genocidal war, said Bassem Naim. We are, however, open to any initiative that contributes to ending the aggression on our people and opening the crossings to bring in aid and provide relief to the Palestinian people. I've heard there are literally thousands of trucks uh, at the Rafah crossing and Israel is only allowing in one per hour. You know, uh, that was certainly the case yesterday. Um, so starvation is being used as a weapon. That's Human Rights Watch's claim. In addition to the bombardment, uh, the withholding of food is being used as a weapon by the Israelis, which is another war crime. Unbelievable. So listen, just just compare that, Basil, to what normally goes in uh, before the hostilities ramped up on October seventh. Uh, what was it? Two, three, three to four hundred trucks per day, per day. Right. So think about that. They've been starved out for now for for two months, over two months. We're into, we're right. into week I mean, number nine. It's week number nine that's now, right. Basil. You, you know what two hundred, three hundred trucks per day means, Patrick. It means they're the most pampered people on the planet, according to Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, according to RFK. Yeah, hmm, that's what he said. They're the most pampered people on the planet. I don't know what to say about that guy uh, other than uh, I considered uh, possibly voting for him if uh, Trump was going to get knocked out for whatever reason. I mean, if he had a... If he had a sane position on the Middle East, uh, on the Palestinian issue, I might just, uh, I might just vote for him. 
because I did like his what he was saying about everything else. And I was impressed with what he said about everything else, but he's pretty much killed it uh, for me because just the, the visceral hate for Palestinians by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think is just inexcusable for someone that's putting himself across as a humanitarian. I really just, I struggle with this. So I think there's something going on there and I don't know what it is, but it's a huge stumbling block for him. And I don't know why uh, he is so deeply into the sort of Zionist rhetoric on that. It's just sad. It's very regrettable because I think he would have uh, would have been a, a strong independent alternative candidate for president. But I, I can't support that. Just that level of hate um, against the Palestinians. And it's almost racism or I don't even know what to how to describe it. It's bizarre, quite frankly especially coming from someone who's a supposedly, you know, a Democrat. I don't know. I'm not a Democrat, but, you know, I, I do like centrist Democrats. I tend to like them a lot. And I might even vote for them once in a while if they had their policies lined up the right way. But uh, anyway, got a couple minutes left. I'll give you the floor. Go ahead, Basil. Well, uh, we're very fortunate to be joined in the next hour, as you've been mentioning to viewers, by the CEO of the Palestinian Refugee Project here in the UK. And she has contacts on the ground in Gaza, uh, Tagred al Mawed. Now, a lot of the time, as you know, Gaza journalists have been killed. 96. I think we're up to 96, Patrick. I believe, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, that's more journalists than were killed in World War II. Correct. And uh, in World War II, that was over a six-year span. So, I mean, yeah. this is it's ridiculous. Kind of a bigger conflict, too, you know. Kind yeah. of a bigger conflict, too, for the yeah. time being. So, you know, something very sinister about that. Really. It's the only way of describing it. As well as the poets, doctors, and, and, and everything else. I mean, uh, people talk about the question of proportionality uh, in mm -hmm. war. Um, well, you know, this is off the charts, disproportionate. Uh, and we still see, and this was pointed out by somebody from Novara Media in a clip I saw, uh, this absolutely sickening moral cowardice by Western politicians and churchmen. I don't mind telling you and listeners that over the last couple of days, I've been in touch with the Roman Catholic Church in the UK, uh, mm. the official media department, communications department, and the Church of England, both centrally and the Diocese of Southwark, which has particular relationship with the Patriarchy of Jerusalem, asking them to provide a spokesman, a comment about the shooting of the mother and daughter in the grounds of the convent a couple of days ago, and to comment on the wider conflict itself, and they can't be bothered. They're afraid of putting anyone up. Now, people always say, how did these terrible things happen in times of war? And now we know the church is a coward. It's as simple as that. There may well, be individual clergymen. Yeah, I'm going to gonna add, listen, the Israelis just bombed Mother Teresa's monastery in Gaza. Just, just this morning or last night, yesterday afternoon. So just yeah. to add that yeah. to the sort of a targeting of Catholic uh, sites in Gaza. And so at least the Pope had the decency to call it an act of terrorism, uh, yes. calling the, the Israelis. So, I mean, it's finally, better late than never, Francis pipes up on this and says something. But, you know, where are the rank and file in the Catholic Church? Um, honestly, well, the, the, they're scared. They're, they're afraid. Yeah, 
Cardinal, that's right. Cardinal Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster, called it a cold-blooded killing uh, on Sky News. But uh, the media officer I spoke to at the Church of England uh, said that it hadn't been confirmed that it was the IDF who shot those two people. So that was why they were reluctant to say anything. Well, Justin Welby, don't hold your breath for him. I can tell you that right, right now. Um, anyway, Basil, Basil Valentine, thanks for joining us on TNT. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, concise as always. Basil Valentine, top of the hour news headlines coming up. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Wait for hour number two. We've got a lot more in the barrel for you. So get ready. We're locked. We're loaded. Ready to roll. See you in a few.